I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The Federal Reserve has been aggressively combating inflation since it began raising interest rates in March 2022. And it's seen success in this battle. On the day that we are recording this interview, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has released the latest inflation numbers. Inflation over the 12 months ending in August 2023 was 3.7%. This is much lower than its peak of 9.1% in June 2022. To date, inflation has come down with virtually no rise in unemployment, something that, it's safe to say, very few people predicted. But this newest inflation rate is still above the Fed's target of 2%. Will a so-called soft landing, a reduction in inflation without a recession, continue if the Federal Reserve attempts to bring inflation down to its 2% target? My guest today, Peter Blair Henry, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and Dean Emeritus of New York University's Stern School of Business, has studied the countries that tried to bring down inflation, that is to disinflate, and he draws lessons for the current experience. Peter reported on his research that he did jointly with Anusha Chari of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in an article in Foreign Affairs earlier this year. Peter, welcome to Econofact Chats and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It's really a pleasure to be with you. So to begin with, Peter, can you explain why economists think that a recession is required to bring down inflation how the central bank of a country can bring about a recession? Thanks, Michael. That's an important question. And the thing to remember is that an economy is a supply side and a demand side. And the supply side is basically how many goods goods and services are produced by the firms, corporations, uh, small businesses, you know, and large businesses in an economy. And the demand side is how much is demanded by households, consumers, and also firms that want to buy things like investment goods and so forth. And so when uh, the demand for goods and services outstrips the ability of the economy to produce those goods and services, prices tend to rise. And so economists have sort of sophisticated ways, ways of thinking about these things. We have this term called potential output and actual output. And what that means is when actual output is above potential output and uh, the economy is essentially what we call overheating, right? It's basically producing more than it can produce in a sustainable way. Something has to give um, so that inflation doesn't continue to rise because if inflation continues to rise, that can be very problematic for the economies I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss. And so one way to get rid of inflation is to cool the economy, right? To reduce demand. And central banks do this by raising interest rates. It's the uh, best policy tool that they have. And when you raise interest rates, it raises the cost of borrowing for households and for firms. And that means that firms are 
likely to, to invest less. Uh, uh, households are likely to, to consume less. As households consume less and firms invest less and, and cut back their production because households are demanding less, then um, that has knock-on effects in the economy and unemployment uh, tends to rise as, as, as a result of that, of that process because there's less, um, there's less need for the workers to produce um, that previously unsustainable level of, of output. And so that's why unemployment tends to rise uh, during uh, periods of trying to get rid of inflation. And um, that's historically been the pattern in the data. There's a relationship called the Phillips curve, which basically says that, um, you know, the, the combination of things that need to happen is output needs to stop, uh, needs to fall below potential output for inflation to, to drop. And in order for that to happen, unemployment needs to, to, to rise uh, to a rate above the, uh, the natural rate of unemployment. In the background paper that you and Anusha wrote, that presents the research that your foreign affairs article is based upon, you talk about two schools of thought concerning how difficult it'll be to bring inflation down to its target rate. One of these you call the sacrifice ratio school, and the other you call the this time is different school. What are the views of each of these and how do they differ? Well, the sacrifice ratio school, Michael, really kind of adheres to the process that I just described. Uh, which is that uh, in order for inflation to come down, output has to go up, sorry, up, sorry, unemployment has to go up because um, in order for basically the central bank to get uh, uh, firms and households to believe that it's serious about reducing, uh, reducing the inflation rate, uh, unemployment needs, needs, needs to rise and, and, and as a result output falls and you get this uh, series of cascading effects that lead to a, a, real, a real slowdown in the economy. Uh, a different point of view says that, well, actually, if the central bank could just convince everyone that it was really serious about reducing the rate of inflation, then uh, firms would stop raising their prices, workers would stop uh, demanding uh, uh, increases in wages, and inflation could come down really, really rapidly. And and so so this what this this. Uh, this time is different school, it's called, as, as, as we call it, uh, is really attributable uh, to a view uh, that came out of a, a very famous paper by, by Tom Sargent uh, in, in the early 1980s, where he showed that, in, in fact, in the case of what are called hyperinflation, so this is a case where inflation is sometimes as high as 1,000% per year. And he looked at the cases of four uh, countries post-World War uh, One in uh in central and eastern europe that were able to get inflation on really really rapidly simply by committing to a reducing uh the size of the fiscal deficits basically less reducing government spending drastically and at the same time committing to uh the central bank committing to uh not uh print money to, to, to finance those deficits and by doing that inflation came down really really rapidly so so this time is different school says, well, if we can just do things, if we just be really credible on fiscal and monetary policy, we can get inflation down really quickly without unemployment going up. In your research paper, you talk about the sacrifice ratio school. An example of that is a Volcker disinflation of the, that began in the late 1970s and continued into the early 1980s. And we saw a spike in unemployment. So I could ask you which side you come down on the sacrifice ratio school or the this time is different school, or as a spoiler alert, I could just 
give the title of your foreign affairs article. It's called The Long War on Inflation, and the subtitle kind of gives it away. It's Don't Expect a Quick Return to Price Stability. So this view is based on the analysis on the research paper that I mentioned by you and Anusha of historical disinflation episodes. Can you, Peter, describe what you looked at and why you looked at those particular episodes? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So what we did is we said, looking at the, uh, the current disinflation episode of the United States trying to bring inflation down from you know, close to 10%, and also, frankly, the Bank of England and the, and, and the ECB trying to bring down double-digit inflation uh, in England and Europe, um, we said, gee, everyone's thinking about the Volcker episode. But I'm from Jamaica originally, and my co-author Anusha is from India, so we're both from developing countries. And so we're kind of very familiar with other countries that had to, had to wrestle with inflationary issues. And in particular, there are countries, uh, people, when people think of developing countries having inflation, they typically think of really high inflation, like Argentina and Brazil having hyperinflations, kind of like the episodes associated uh, with the, the This Time is Different school of thought in Central and Eastern Europe after World War War I. But Anusha and I were aware of what are called moderate inflation episodes in developing countries. And we, re- and we realized that there were 56 cases of countries that tried to reduce inflation where the average inflation rate was about 15% per year. So not dissimilar from the, uh, the double-digit inflation that we saw in Europe and in, 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 in the UK at, their, at the peak of their inflation in, uh, in 2022. And so we said, gee, there are a lot more episodes than just the one Volcker episode that we could actually look at to learn about what happens when countries try to reduce so-called moderate inflation. So you're taking a pretty wide range of countries, and some people may wonder what the experience of countries like um, Argentina or Brazil can teach us about what might happen in the United States, which is a rich and a large country where inflation recently peaked not at a thousand percent or forty percent, but just below ten percent. What can we learn from that wide range of countries that you and Anusha looked at, Peter, for the United States? Well, I think what's really critical, Michael, is uh, you know the, to make the distinction between the Argentinas and Brazils, where inflation was really high, versus countries like uh, India or let's say uh, Colombia. Or, um, or other countries where inflation was, was much more, more moderate. And by moderate, we mean uh, double-digit inflation on the order of you know, 15%, which is very similar to what we saw uh, in, uh, in, in the UK and in Europe. And you know, in the United States, at 9% was not far away from, from, from double-digit inflation. So one of the things I thought was really interesting in your article is, in fact, that you make that distinction. You split the sample into those countries that initially had inflation greater than 40% and those that had inflation below 40%. And that tracks somewhat to sort of the distinction you made before where Tom Sargent looked at the hyperinflations of the 1920s and then other people talked about the Volcker disinflation. And so that kind of maps, I guess, in a way to these two different schools of thought by cutting the sample that way. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the 40% threshold that you mentioned, Michael, is a well-established threshold. So Stanley Fisher and Rudy Dornbusch uh, looked at what they call moderate inflation 
uh, back in the 19, uh, in the early 1990s, they, 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 they defined moderate inflation as inflation that was basically double digit inflation, but below that 40% threshold that was identified by Bill Easterly and Michael Bruno and some of their work on, on, on high inflation in the 90s. That's when you were their student at MIT, right? Yes, I remember. T- I remember, in fact, reading uh, Stan and Rudy's paper on on moderate inflation in our in our macroeconomics class with uh, with Stan Fisher. Another thing that I both found great interesting, teachers, by the way, <laughs> yeah, um, and both uh, Rudy especially very sorely missed, and Stan is retired now. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting was um, when Sargent's paper came out, the Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson commenting on it, said, um, you don't really learn a lot about dynamite by studying nuclear explosions. <laughs> uh, I see that you immediately understand that uh, analogy. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So if you want to understand what the disinflation process is likely to be like coming down from 15% inflation, trying to get to say 2% inflation or 9% to 2% inflation, it's hard to learn much about that, uh, and this is what the what the I think what the data are telling us by looking at uh, by looking at uh, you know hyperinflation in in, in uh, forget what country it was there were, there were countries in Eastern Europe but the geography Germany China. for example the yeah, German hyperinflation yeah, Austria Germany yeah. Austria Poland and, uh, and, and Hungary but but the geography is not what's important what's important is the level of inflation and so. Yeah, I, I, I do think that Paul Samuelson has a point that if we want to understand what the current disinflation is likely to how how smoothly it's likely to proceed in the United States, in Europe, and in the UK, we should be looking at like episodes, R- regardless of where the geography is. The key thing is what's the what's the what's the level the nature of inflation, and so when you have inflation rates that are on on the order of about fifteen percent per year. In these 56 moderate inflation episodes in developing countries, those are data we ought to use and see what we can learn from them. And in fact, the sources of inflation were very different in these hyperinflation episodes than in the moderate inflation episodes. In the hyperinflation, it was the war reparations in the wake of World War One. But as you point out, sort of what's going on in the United States today is not so dissimilar from some of these moderate inflation episodes. Can you explain what you meant by that when you wrote that in your paper? Yes. So first of all, I'll start with the level of inflation, right? So nine percent inflation in the U.S. at the peak, double-digit inflation in, in the in the U.K. and 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 the EU, versus in the fifty-six episodes that we looked at, the uh, you know, the median inflation rate was about fifteen percent in those in those in those fifty-six cases, and um, you know in the U.S. Uh, one of the key one of the key things is that you know, there's monetary policy working to fight uh, to bring inflation down, but monetary policy is working uh, at cross purposes with fiscal policy. As we know, the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office has, 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 has forecast uh, deficits uh, for the next decade, decade plus. And so you had similar situations in some of the moderate inflation uh, developing countries that we're looking at. You had central banks who were trying to disinflate they were trying to disinflate in environments where you had governments that were running fiscal deficits, not fiscal deficits that were so large that they were being monetized necessarily by the central bank, as in uh, Hungary and, and Poland and so forth, but large enough that uh, the fiscal deficits were uh, 
generating excess demand on uh, on the demand side of the, econ- the economy and making uh, it harder to bring actual output in line with, uh, with with potential output. So I think there really are some similarities there. Looking at your paper, I was struck by the um, the novel approach you took to the analysis. When people think about the cost of disinflation, they study what's called the sacrifice ratio. I guess that's where you got the name for that one school of thought. That's right. And that's the, that's the amount of output foregone in a disinflation episode. But you, um, you and Anusha, you look at data from the stock market and you calculate what you call the cumulative abnormal returns. Can you explain what that measure is very briefly and what it captures and why you use that in your analysis? Yes. So the sacrifice ratio school basically asks, if we try to reduce inflation, how much output do we lose? And we thought to ourselves, really, the question you want to know the answer to is, if you try to reduce inflation, will the benefits that, from reducing inflation that come in the future be greater than the losses that come from trying to reduce inflation that come today? Uh, and so we try to think of, well, how would you actually capture future benefits as well as present costs? And the stock market, at least in principle, is forward looking. And so if, this, if reducing inflation is going to be good for the economy by raising GDP, making it easier to do business and, and increasing future, uh, future, future profits and output, that should be reflected in the stock market. Uh, and if there are costs to reducing inflation in the short run, well, the stock market is going to look at the, the, the costs of reducing inflation relative to the benefits in the future and capture it all in uh, the, the, the present value of, of the, uh, the stock price in response to the change in the stock price in response to the news that a country is going to begin a disinflation program. So we thought by looking at uh, basically how much the stock market jumps in response to the news uh, of a disinflation program would be a a reasonable way to capture uh, the net expected uh, benefits of the program. So I just want to um, emphasize that a little, because for you and me, that's sort of a natural um, explanation. But for some of our listeners, you know, the basic theory in finance is that the price of a stock reflects the complete future prediction or the complete prediction of the uh, entire future of what's going to happen to a company. And as you say, Stock prices move because of what people think is going to happen, not just tomorrow, but in two years or five years or even 10 years. So you're able to capture this. And, you know, and this I thought was a very clever way of looking at um, ways of, you know, getting the sort of net cost versus benefits out of that. Can you describe, Peter, um, a little bit of what you found with your research, um, specifically what you found for the moderate versus the high inflation countries and what this might mean for the present situation in the United States? Yeah. So there are a few things that really jump out of the data. The, the, kind of the, the, the headline thing that really jumps out of these data is that trying to reduce moderate inflation is a very different exercise than trying to reduce high inflation. And that theme is kind of reinforced both by the stock market and by what we would, as economists would call, kind of the real side of the economy. Um, traditional measures of looking at things like GDP, but also looking at um, just the speed with which inflation comes down. So let me just kind of enumerate it for you. So number one, when countries try to reduce 
moderate inflation. There are 56 episodes of this. They almost always fail, right? So of the 56 episodes that we looked at, almost all of which were done with the help of the IMF, only five, there are only five successful episodes of getting from double digit inflation to single digit inflation. So that tells you just off the bat, it's, it's hard for countries to reduce moderate inflation, right? Uh, in the case of high inflation, we looked at 25 episodes. Um, now, many of those also failed, okay? Um, but once you strip out kind of the repeated failures in Argentina and Brazil, and, and Argentina and Brazil account for uh, almost three quarters of those episodes, what we found is that outside of Latin America, uh, modern reducing high inflation is actually pretty successful. It's kind of a four and five success rate, right? Um, so that's sort of fact number one. Fact number two is when you actually when you actually look at how long it takes to reduce inflation, going from moderate inflation to low inflation, so going from you know double digit inflation that's less than forty percent to single digit inflation, typically takes about three years. In the high inflation cases that we looked at, uh, you typically get from you know forty percent plus inflation to uh, to double digit inflation uh, within a, within a, within a year's time and no more than eight, no more than eighteen months. And then finally, on the stock market, because high inflation is just so costly to everybody, what we find is that the stock market responds very positively to announcements of disinflation programs when, when inflation is high, above 40%. There's about a, as I recall, about a 40% plus uh, jump in the stock market in the period leading up to the, the disinflation program. Um, but the stock market actually, rea actually reacts negatively in the case of uh, disinflation programs announced in the midst of moderate inflation. So they're just very different animals. Moderate inflation and high inflation are very different. Uh, and that's kind of, I would say, in, um, in accordance with um, the, the Samuelson view of the world. Dynamite doesn't teach us a lot about nuclear explosions or vice versa. Yeah. Well, but Peter, we've seen, in fact, inflation come down quite a bit. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, from over 9% to its current sub 4%. But I guess what you're describing tells us something about the difficulty, perhaps, of getting to that 2% target. And other people have also commented that the last bit of this disinflation might be really challenging. Do you think that your results speak to that? I think in the broadest sense, our results are, are, are telling us Yes, moderate inflation is very different than high inflation and takes a, it's, it can be a protracted, it's in general, a protracted process. And we're seeing some of that difficulty, I think, play itself out now in the data. It's still, it's still relatively early days, but the Fed has now been at disinflation for over a year, right? Um, when, they, from when, when, when they started raising rates. And We've gotten from, you know, sort of 9.1% inflation cores down to 4.3, which is still, you know, twice the target rate. And I think the critical question is going to be how fast does the Fed intend to try to get us to 2%, right? And so if, if you're looking for, and if you think back to the, the title of our foreign affairs piece, the long war on inflation, uh, what, we, what we were trying to point out is that the data suggests that this won't be a quick and easy process. And so um, I think that the data are, at this point, suggesting that that's likely to be the case, 
right? Think of think of think of you know you know anybody who's anybody who's done any construction knows that the last ten percent of construction takes you know uh, more than ten percent of the time, and it may just be that similarly that you know there's there's sort of um, uh, this really hard bit at the end is going to be going to be going to be tough. And one one just one historical example that's that kind of reinforces that point is the case of Chile. So Chile is the only country in our sample that went from high inflation to moderate inflation, and then moderate inflation to low inflation. And Chile um, got stuck at moderate inflation for years. And so they had to introduce an inflation target. I think it was in 1992, they introduced a 20% inflation target um, because they decided they were going to try to gradually reduce moderate inflation to low inflation. And they were able to do that without incurring um, a very high output cost, but it took them you know, several years to get down to single digit inflation. And so I think the question that people are not asking is basically how rapidly does the Fed intend to try to get us to 2%? I think the Fed is implicitly taking their time and taking a gradual approach versus what we used to call a cold turkey approach, which is just trying to eliminate inflation overnight. And if the Fed did try to do that, uh, did try to get us down to 2% very rapidly, I suspect that we would start seeing some real output on unemployment costs. But the Fed is, seems to be taking their time, which is why we're, I think, in this period of higher for longer. And they're, they're I think, wisely uh, seeing whether inflation will, at the current levels of interest rates, uh, come down gradually over time. But they're certainly prepared to raise rates again if they see signs to the contrary. When I think about um, analyzing policy or analyzing outcomes, I should say, I often ask the question, is this outcome a reflection of good policy or good luck? Mm. And so we can see a situation or you can imagine, for example, a situation where, you know, stuff, for example, the war in Ukraine goes one way or the other, which then has an impact on inflation. And that's just to say that, you know, the Fed is trying to bring inflation down, but a lot of what happens is outside of its control. Absolutely. And I think one of the really, really important lessons of history, and this is reinforced and underscored and highlighted when you look at the history of developing countries, is that when you have adverse events out of your control that push inflation up, it's very tempting to accommodate those shocks. Uh, and doing that usually results in inflation um, being even higher than you wanted to want, wanted to, wanted to, were willing to live with in the first place, and even higher than the inflation that's that's caused by that initial whether it's an energy shock or some other shock. Uh, and so it's tempting to try to accommodate the shock, but if you're really serious about keeping inflation uh, down and keeping prices stable, which is the job of the central bank, then you often need to tighten. And I think one of the things that the Fed has tried very hard to do is to establish, reestablish its, um, or hold on to its credibility. Uh, and um, it's very, very important. Yeah, that was the, um, the real challenge for Paul Volcker at the end of the 70s, because the Fed had sort of blown its credibility in um, accommodating oil price shocks then. And Volcker, you know, brought back the Fed's credibility, but at a high price, as you say, you know, as you mentioned earlier, high unemployment. Well, I guess it remains to be seen, you know, whether this time is different or not. Um, but certainly the work of you and Anusha 
has helped people understand these ideas more uh, more clearly. And I really appreciate, once again, Peter, you joining me today for this episode of Econofact Chats. Michael, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.